there, happy Wednesday. Um, so thankful that you could be here tonight. Last week we began a series called Miracles and Meaning and we are diving in to the book of John once again and we are focusing on um, eight major miracles that Jesus performed in the book of John and uh, we are kind of digging a little bit deeper into the meaning of those miracles. I wanted to uh, just kind of recap a little bit of what we talked about last week. We know that there are uh, what we call natural miracles that happen around us every single day. Uh, the very fact that we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears, these are natural miracles. Uh, these do not require the special intervention of God, um, but we understand we have these abilities because God instituted these in his initial creation miracle. And so we are incredibly thankful for the natural miracles that we experience, but the miracles in the book of John are what we call supernatural miracles. And the way that we define supernatural miracles is when the supernatural, or in other words, when God breaks into time and space and he interferes with that which is natural. Remember, we talked about God being eternal and he is outside of the capsule of time and space and the planet, the universe, and all that lives. He is outside of that. And when God chooses to break into that and to make decisions or act in a special, unique way, that is what we call a supernatural miracle. And so tonight what we're going to do is um, we are going to kind of jump back a little bit we're going to dig into uh, the wedding at Cana. I know last week we were able to talk a little bit about the wedding feast and the miracle of turning water into wine. But as I thought more about it, um, I had to skip half of the notes that I had on this. And I just thought, no, this is, there's too much good stuff that we can learn from the wedding at Cana. And so I wanted to spend tonight focusing on the miracle of turning water into wine. We're going to be in John chapter 2 tonight, if you have your Bible, the first 12 verses. Uh, I want to kind of give you a reminder of the context in which is set here. Jesus is in his early 30s, late 20s perhaps, but more than likely his early 30s. He has recently been water baptized by John the Baptist. He has come onto the scene. He has been water baptized. The Bible says that the Spirit has sent Jesus into the wilderness to fast and pray and to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then when Jesus returned, he returned in the power of the Spirit. And so it's been a little over a month since this event has happened, maybe, maybe two months at the most. Jesus has uh, kind of uh, gently approached the scene. He has gathered with him a couple of disciples. We think probably at this point, four or five or six disciples are with Jesus. And the Bible picks up here in verse 1 of John chapter 2. The Bible says, And on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the wine, now become the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the wine, the water, knew. The master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, Father, this evening, we want to submit your written word uh, to the anointing and to the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, 
I want to pray tonight, Lord, as we dig in a little bit to these scriptures that you will uh, come in close to us and that you as our teacher will teach us the things that we as individuals need to hear and need to understand. Help us to grow in our faith. Help us to mature so that we can become all that you have called us to be. Father, in, uh, just really increase our desire to see miracles such as this even in our day. And so, Father, we commit all this to you. We give thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen. Now, last week we talked about the difference between a sign and a miracle. And uh, the book of John is unique in that he calls uh, his miracles with a specific word that literally means it is an event that happens that points to something else. It's what uh, John would call a sign. And in all of these miracles, um, what Jesus is ultimately pointing to, firstly, he does a miracle, he performs a miracle, and it points immediately to his divinity. He is still so new to the planet in the incarnation that he is still trying to win the faith and the belief of the people of the planet. And partly he does that through the activity of miracles. And so it's a miracle or it's a sign that points to his divinity. But like we discussed last week, it may point to his divinity, but there may be several layers of different uh, meaning or reasons that Jesus performs such miracles. It's kind of like uh, several years ago when I was in my uh, my twenties, uh, I had a I had a blog. I would be so embarrassed if anybody went back and read this blog, but I had a blog that uh, I wrote, and I remember for for whatever reason one time I had written a blog that talked about. Um, a wish list that I had, like a top 10 wish list that I was going to try to budget for and over the next you know, couple of years try to uh, accumulate all these things on my wish list. And I remember just a couple of months later, the weekend of Father's Day actually, it was uh, just a couple of days before Father's Day, I remember I got this, this huge box, this huge package uh, sent to my house from UPS. At the time, I lived in Panama City. And my dad, who lived just a couple hours away in Pensacola, he had somehow seen the blog. I didn't promote it to people or anything like that, but somehow he had seen the blog. And what he had decided to do is he printed out a list of everything on the blog. And for Father's Day that year, he went and bought me everything on that list. And it was an incredible gift. It was things like... um, you know, I think one of them was, was as simple as, you know, a specific hat that I wanted from somewhere. And it was as extravagant as a brand new iPad, which in, you know, at this time, iPads were fresh on the market. They were incredibly expensive. Nobody had them. And uh, I opened this box and printed there before me is, is a list, you know, my blog basically of, of all the different things. And beside every one was a, was a check mark. And as I went through the box, he had all these 10 gifts just laid out in the box for me. It was absolutely incredible. But it was one of those things where as incredible as the gifts were, there was an extra layer of meaning that that meant for me. It wasn't just that my dad would fork out the money uh, to send all this stuff to me. It was the idea that my dad had the forethought that he considered my life, that he considered the things that I desired. And he came in close in order to provide those things for me. And those weren't, those weren't things that I needed. Nothing on that list was anything that I needed. They were all wants. But my dad, in the goodness of his heart, cared for me so much that not only did he give me the gifts, which were incredible, but it was the idea that he thought about me and he considered me and he took the time and the effort and the finances in order to do something for me at that level. When we look at the miracles in the book of John, it's very, very much like that. We see the miracle on the surface, and it's incredible, and and we're so thankful that God did these things for these people. But again, there are layer upon layer upon layer of things that God intended to accomplish through the miracles that he did in order to reveal to us his care and concern for us. And so 
Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to unpack a little bit of Jesus and the miracle of turning the water into wine. And as we do this, we're just going to ask some questions and give some answers. Uh, The first question that we would ask is, it's a basic observation that this wedding, or excuse me, this very first miracle, it occurs at a wedding. And the question that comes to mind why would Jesus, out of, out of all the events, out of all the locations on the planet, why in the world would Jesus choose to do his very first miracle at a wedding feast? And a couple of answers may help us out. Number one, I believe that the miracle, um, Jesus chose to do it at a wedding because he wanted to affirm the holy union of marriage. Now, if I'm sure you've been to a wedding and you've probably never seen the miracle of this, uh, of this, you know, that carried this much weight. I'll tell you, at my wedding, the only miracle that really happened was that Joy said, I do. And that was an incredible miracle. And I'm so thankful um, that she did that. But at this wedding feast, Jesus performed a miracle. And part of the rationale, I believe, is that, number one, I think that, that Jesus just wanted to put his stamp of approval on the holy union of husband and wife, of, of the marriage union before God. But I also think it's interesting that in the very beginning, in the book of Genesis, the first institution that God creates is not the church, it's not government, it's nothing like that. The first institution that God creates and he blesses is marriage. And I find it so interesting that God does that. The Father chooses to do that in the very beginning of his ministry in the book of Genesis. And then Christ, as he shows up incarnate in the book of John, the first miracle that he does uh, is at a wedding to affirm and to bless the institution of marriage. And so I believe that God wants to uh, reveal and to help us understand the gravity of how much he approves of marriage, the institution as a holy sacrament of one of these things that is not only involved in relational health and productivity and help as a helpmate, but it also feeds the planet through procreation. And perhaps Jesus did this to affirm, put a stamp of approval on the union of marriage. Number two, it is... um, it is very likely that Jesus also chose to do this at a wedding because Jesus was announcing the coming of his kingdom. Now, in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Revelation, there are references to what we call the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, in Revelation, John, as a matter of fact, the same man who's writing about the wedding at Cana, this is what he writes. And the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so Jesus, as he is uh, performing this miracle at a marriage um, celebration, Jesus is not only doing that, but he's pointing to something greater. He's pointing to something that will come in the culmination of all things. The marriage supper of the Lamb is, is a point when the believers of the earth are met with Christ in the air, and then we celebrate with him at this marriage feast. It's perhaps important for Jesus to do this because he is initiating a new covenant. And he's saying, listen, this old way of doing things, I'm not doing away with this, but I am coming to fulfill it and not just fulfill it in my day, but to fulfill it in a future day. It was the initiation of a new era. It was the initiation of a new kingdom. And this new kingdom, Jesus wanted it to begin in a marriage celebration in Cana but it will end in the marriage supper of the lamb in heaven. And so it has a lot to do with Jesus announcing the coming of a new kingdom. Well, the second question that we ask is, um, why would Jesus choose to do this in a private setting like a marriage ceremony? The reality is, is that we see Jesus, not only did he do this at a, at a wedding ceremony, but it seems, according to the text, that there were people at the wedding feast that did not even know that Jesus had done it. The text says that the servants who had drawn the water that had become wine, they knew about it. 
But the master of the feast and the others, they likely did not know about it. And so Jesus, not only did he choose a small setting, but even in the context of that small setting, he chose a back room in which to perform this miracle. It begs the question, why? Why would Jesus choose to do something so powerful and so miraculous in a private setting? And I believe, number one, one of the answers is simply this, that the miracle is done privately to emphasize the personal nature of Jesus's ministry. Now, when we see Jesus over the next couple of years, his ministry evolves and it expands. And there are moments where there are literally thousands upon thousands of thousands of people that are following him. There are masses that are flocking to him. But then sometimes Jesus' teaching will be a hard teaching. And the Bible says that many, many of those people will go away. And Jesus is only left with a couple hundred or 120. Jesus, other times he would focus from that, the masses to the 120 to the 70 disciples. And he would, he would send some out. But then most of Jesus' time was focused on the 12 disciples. These were the, the ones that he had individually called specifically to follow him from the very beginning. But even from those 12, there was a smaller group, the three, Peter, James, and John. And these were the people where Jesus would share his most intimate, uh, detailed, his most intimate experiences when Elijah and Moses are standing there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He brings with him these three disciples because he wants them to experience something very, very special with him. But even in the context of the 12 and the three, Jesus has a very unique and personal relationship with John, whom is called the beloved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think Jesus is trying to communicate something here. I think he's trying to help the average person understand that they do not have to attain a certain escalon of followership, but they are simply people that Jesus loves, that Jesus loves, and he wants to be touchable with them. It's the idea of the children who kind of flock to Jesus and the disciples try to shoo them away, but Jesus says, no, 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 let the little children come unto me. Jesus had a very personal ministry. So much so the, the writers in the Old Testament, Isaiah, they would say that Jesus, one of his names will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, that Jesus is going to be with us and he is going to live among us and that he is going to love us and he will touch us and hug us and affirm us. It is a very personal thing that the God, the creator of all things, is trying to help us understand that he wants to be intimately involved in our lives. The second reason I believe that Jesus chose to do this miracle in private is because he wanted to ensure that God the Father's timing was not violated. Time and time again, as you go through the gospel, as it, as it uh, develops through the book of John, and even later on as in Paul's writing, he writes to the Galatians and he says this. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And so we get this understanding that Father has this, um, this very detailed, organized plan, and there is a timetable in heaven. And Jesus wanted to make sure that he didn't get ahead of himself. This is why when his mother comes to him, he says, Mama, why would you, why would you ask me to do this right now? My, my time has not yet come. What Jesus is communicating is, Mama, I don't want to get ahead of what Father is asking me to do. And so what we learn here is that Jesus, it's very, very possible that he felt like the Father's plan was not for him to blow up on the scene. If you can imagine a wedding feast where there may have been 75, 100, 200 people that were there in this small town, and Jesus had performed this, minute, this miracle in front of all of them, his fame, his glory would have been exposed almost too quickly because as Jesus comes onto the scene, what we find is that he was very strategic and incremental about exposing levels of his glory all the way leading to the cross. Jesus thought, if I go from where I am now to all the way out here, it'll throw off the Father's timetable, and I don't want to do that. And so what we find is that um, this is a very teachable moment for us. That the God of the universe, the God of the universe who only lived for, for you know, 30-something years, 
although he would only have ministry for a few of those years, that he still was of the mindset that he wanted to wait on the permission of the Father in heaven before he took any step. He even admitted, he said, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do that thing. And so for us, it is a teaching moment because what Jesus is trying to communicate in this new kingdom is that waiting in the new kingdom is not the same as waiting in the old kingdom. Waiting in this new era, in this new covenant, is not the same as it once was. Waiting then was just waiting. Waiting now is preparation. It is preparing us for what God wants to fulfill as we wait and we obey his timetable. I remember my wife and I, when we were serving uh, in ministry in Panama City, we were there for about nine years. And I remember about year six, year seven, something like that, I remember I felt a very distinct um, shift in my heart. And I felt like the Lord was going to call us away from the ministry that we were at to something else. And in my mind, immediately when that shift happened, I, you know, I told my wife, I said, I said, look, you need to, you need to get ready. We need to start packing up the house. God has kind of shifted my heart. I feel like things are going to, you know, transition and all this. And, and I remember being so confused because the Lord had shifted my heart so much, but nothing was coming available. There weren't, there weren't churches or ministries or opportunities that were calling us. And so I was very confused because I felt like, Lord, why are you doing this now if it's not going to happen now? Maybe I just misheard the Lord or I misunderstood or whatever. But the reality is simply this, is that in those last couple of years in our ministry there, God did so much deep work in my soul, in my family, in my wife, in all of us. He did so much deep work inside of us that it was preparing us for the next season, which would actually, we would land here at Christian Life in Columbia. I'm so thankful. But God was preparing us because if we would have jumped the gun and we would have made a move just because we felt like there was a shift, it probably would have been premature and it probably would have not ended well. And so I'm so thankful that, that we chose to just wait and we said, Father, we are not going to kick this door open. We are just going to wait for you. You are providential. You know the, the end from the beginning. And so, Father, we're just going to trust in you. We're going to be patient. And again, we learned during that season that waiting isn't waiting. Waiting is preparation to get us ready for what the Lord has next for us. And so it is, it is interesting that Jesus chose to do this miracle in private, but again, there are reasons that he chose to do it. Number three, uh, the question that comes to my mind is out of all of the miracles that Jesus could have done, why with this first miracle did he choose to involve something like wine? Now, um, Wine in Christ's day was very different than wine today. Um, wine then was very much a luxury for the people. Like for us, um, sweet tea may be a luxury. I remember one time I, I went up north and I went to a restaurant and I asked, I say it was up north, it's still considered the south, but it was more north of here. And they said, well, we don't have sweet tea. And I thought, what is the sin you talk, you speak of? I, I don't understand. Um, but the reality is, is that for, for many of us who grew up in the South, sweet tea is a luxury. Chocolate is a luxury. These types of, of things are a luxury. Well, at wedding feasts and, and ceremonies and such, wine was a delicacy. It wasn't something that, that people would just drink day in and day out. Uh, the primary choice of drink was water. And so when Jesus shows up to this wedding feast, um, wine is a luxury that's there. If you have seen the um, uh, the TV show, I know pastors talked about it a couple of times, The Chosen. Uh, there is a phenomenal, uh, they do a, an entire episode based around uh, this miracle at Cana. And uh, it is just so good. But uh, the people who bring the wine to the family, they start talking about the wine. And, you know, they say things like they open the bottle of wine and they smell it and they let the 
the, the, uh, the groom's parents smell it uh, before they, they buy into it and they say, oh, this, is, this was uh, created, it's been fermenting since you know, the days of Augustus and you know, it was cut with seawater and it's mixed with honey and black pepper and pine and all this kind of stuff. And you could tell in the moment that this very much was not a common thing that people did every day. It was very much a specialty. And so um, it's important to understand that. But in my mind, I think, Lord, out of all the things, knowing what is to come, especially in our day in, in the West, in the southernmost part of the West, um, wine or alcohol can be a, a very controversial thing. And so um, I, I found it very interesting. But again, let me, let me just make this clear, that wine in Jesus's day was very different than wine in our day. When you really dig into it and you begin to um, unravel all that wine consisted of, oftentimes wine was um, was mixed with with water or seawater or whatever it was. But oftentimes, at the very lowest, it was mixed with one part wine, three parts water. So it was cut to take away, you know, the uh, the fermentation and and alcohol uh, potency, and so. Oftentimes it was, you know, uh, again, three to one ratio. Um, there are some scholars I've read that have said that, that often that there were some times where the ratio was 20 parts water to one part wine, which basically would have been nothing more than watered down grape juice. And so um, wine in that day was very different than the wine um, here. It required a true diligence to get drunk. Um, if you went to a feast like this or whatever, you would have to be very intentional about getting drunk and not just enjoying the flavor of um, this luxury. I remember when I had first become a Christian, I had some friends, I, I literally had to, had to cut off all of my, my friendships um, over the course of, of a couple of months because I just, I just wasn't strong enough to resist the temptations of my old lifestyle and different things. And I remember one night I went out with uh, literally who was probably my best friend from childhood and another close friend. And we went out and um, they, they were drinking and they were trying to get me to drink. And I said, you know, no, I've, I've given my life to Christ. I'm not going to live like this anymore, all this kind of stuff. And um, they said to me, well, Jesus drank wine. You can have a beer, you know, or whatever it was. And I remember I, even in my infancy of being a Christian, I remember thinking, Ugh, I don't know, that just, it's not the same, you know? Um, and so um, our purposes, especially in that vehicle I was in, my purpose for drinking alcohol would have been very different than Jesus's purpose for drinking alcohol. His purpose was uh, uh, to celebrate and to honor, to enjoy a luxury. Uh, my purpose would have been to get drunk. And so we gotta be very careful when we say things like, well, Jesus did this, so we should be able to do that. Um, if that's true on one level, it needs to be true on all the levels. And so, um, you know, Jesus drinking wine is never an excuse for drunkenness. And so I just think it, we need to be careful with that. But the point is simply this, is that Jesus chose wine uh, in order to perform his first miracle. And there are a couple of reasons that I think he did that. Like I just alluded to, Jesus is trying to enjoy a celebratory moment. He's trying to honor the, the bride and the groom and their families. And he is a part of a celebration that is very joyful. And the miracle of turning the water into wine is representing the joy that Christ brings. Wine in Jesus's day was associated with celebrations. Celebration was associated with joy, a, f a feeling of, of jubilee and, and, and excitement um, for whatever the celebration um, was pertaining to. Now, in addition to that, um, there's a contrast at play here. Jesus, in some way, we can see that Jesus is alluding to the former wine but then he begins to talk about the new wine. There is a wordplay here when it comes to the works of the law and the grace of Christ that he is, he is bringing as he ushers in this new kingdom. It's the idea that the old batch of wine, as good as it may have been, 
it required the work of a lot of people. They had to crush the grapes. They had to, you know, store the grapes away in containers. They had to, you know, mix all that needed to be done. They had to sell it. They had to go through this whole process. It required an incredible amount of work to get this old batch of wine into the hands of the people. But for Jesus, when he steps onto the scene, the new batch of wine requires no work from our hands. It's freely flowing just as the grace of God is freely flowing. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no man may boast. And so what Jesus is doing is he's trying to help us understand that the old batch, it had merit, it had value, but it required work and there was no way to perfect it. But in this new era that's coming, the grace of God is freely flowing and it's available for all and it requires no work on our part because Jesus has done all the work for us. And so it does represent the joy that Christ brings, but it also represents the superiority of that Christ brings over the law, over the law of Moses. Again, there's a spiritual parallel. Jesus, in, in essence, is saying, look, the old covenant was good. To some degree, the old covenant was good, but the new covenant is better, right? I remember when I first got married, my wife and I, um, I wanted to cook dinner for her one night. And so I went out and I thought, I'm going to go get steak and I'm going to grill and we're going to have this incredible meal and everything. And so I went to the grocery store, you know, we were living off peanuts at the time. And so um, I went to the grocery store and I bought a steak. I came back home and I cooked it. And it was perhaps the worst steak I've ever put in my mouth. And the reason was it was a flank steak. It was, it was about, you could, it was a little bit thicker than a sheet of paper. And uh, the reality was is that I just bought the cheapest cut of steak because it said steak on it. I didn't know anything about, you know, the different tiers of steak and all that. I didn't realize that there was a thing called a New York strip. I didn't realize there was a filet mignon that would take um, my wife's enjoyment of the meal from right here through the roof, I did not understand that. And in the very same way, Jesus shows up on the scene and he's saying, listen, um, this, this old covenant is all you know, and it's, it's not bad inherently, it's a good thing. But this new covenant, once you taste of this, you're gonna see not only is it something new, but it's something better, right? And so, there's also some symbolism that talks about the superiority of Christ regarding the law and grace. Um, when we see Jesus, uh, or John writes about the six water jars that were used for purification for the Jews. And so when there was a festival or a feast or whatever it was, the Jews would go and they would purify themselves. They would wash themselves externally and everything that was external would wash off of them. But Jesus would take what was in the jars and he would no longer use it just for that which was external. But he would create something new in that pot that they wouldn't use on an external level, but they would use on an internal level and it would cleanse their souls. The law never had the ability to clean the soul, the spirit of a man. It never had the ability to do that. It only had the ability to clean that which was external. But Jesus says, when your faith is initiated and you begin to take a part of this new covenant, it won't just clean what's on the outside, you will put it on the inside. And this will cleanse you in your spirit. Jesus, even in the uh, book of John chapter four, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, he says, when you receive this, the spirit will be like springs of living water that continually cleanse your soul. And so, there is definitely symbolism in all this as Jesus points to his superiority over that which is old. Another interesting thing is uh, unknowingly talking about the, the superiority of Christ. It's so fascinating to me that the master of the feast, he, doesn't, he probably doesn't even know who Jesus is or that Jesus is even there. He definitely doesn't know that Jesus has just performed this miracle. But unknowingly, the master of the feast before all the people declares the divinity of Christ even without knowing it. He says this, he says to the bridegroom, he says, but you've kept the good wine until now. Can you imagine what that did to the servants' minds? 
in their own spirit, man, as they have just witnessed a, a divine miracle. And a man who has no idea about the miracle has just said, this is the most superior wine that I've ever tasted. All of a sudden in their minds, they must have come alive. It was incredible that he unknowingly spoke of the divinity of Jesus. We see the, see the same thing later in Jesus's life. You remember as he goes to the cross, uh, Pilate is really the one who is making the final decision. And Pilate has a sign written and hung over the cross of Jesus. And it says, King of the Jews, and it's written in a couple of different languages. And the Jews are so upset. They say, he's not our king. Take that sign down. And Pilate just looks at him and he says, I've written what I've written. In other words, look, fellas, you've been difficult to deal with. Tough luck. And for Pilate, it was almost, he was not knowingly speaking to the divinity of Jesus, he was just trying to take a jab at the Jewish people because they had kind of been a thorn in his flesh. But when he put that sign over Jesus, unknowingly, he was declaring the truth that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And furthermore, he's the king of all. And so Christ is superior to the law. The, the new covenant of grace is superior to the law. And this is one of the reasons that Jesus chose to use wine. The fourth question we ask is, why did Jesus involve servants at this time? You remember Mary comes and she says to the servants, listen, do whatever he tells you to do. And Jesus, not, not being forced by any measure, he goes to the servants and he says, listen, I want you to fill these jars. And so when we see this, we, we, we gain this understanding that Jesus, even in his very first miracle, he is communicating God's desire for human partnership with that which is divine. Um, we, we very much are like the conduits of the power of God. We very much are connecting, as believers, we are connecting heaven to earth in a lot of different ways when we lay hands on people, when we pray for people, and God uses us as a conduit. It is explaining to us that God has a desire that we partner with him. Jesus could have gone and filled those jars with water. He wasn't, you know, his legs worked. He could have done it if he wanted to. But Jesus in his goodness was, was sending a signal. He was saying, listen, no, I want human partnership as I carry out my plan for the earth. And so he's communicating his desire for partnership, but he's also communicating his desire for human obedience. Again, Mary says, listen, do whatever he wants you to do. And, and the servants took that to heart. Jesus said, I want you to go and, and fill the water jars. And the Bible says that they didn't just fill the water jars, but they filled them up to the brim. And the message that is sent to us is that we have to realize that miracles oftentimes, oftentimes, not always, but miracles oftentimes depend on our obedience to what the Spirit of God is saying to us. I know I talk about our adoptions a lot, but um, there was just so much that the Lord was doing during, our, during those um, babies coming home. But I remember one specific thing, and forgive me if I've told this story before, but um, my wife and I, we, we were kind of surprised with uh, one of our adoptions. We were not expecting um, another child, and we found out really, really late into the pregnancy and all these kind of things, and we had to raise, you know, 40-something thousand dollars um, to, to be able to bring this baby home in a very short amount of time. And I remember it was Christmas Eve. My wife got a message on Facebook Messenger, and it was from this friend of the family that, you know, we, we know them, but don't really know them. We're not, like, really close by any stretch of the imagination, but we know them and we love them. And it was a lady, and she had messaged Joy, and she said, listen, I just feel like the Lord is leading me to give you $10,000 towards this adoption. And I was, I was undone. I remember the moment. I remember where we were. I remember all those things. It was such an incredible moment. And um, we, you know, obviously anytime someone wants to give a gift like that, you want to receive it because you don't want to offend them. But at the same time, you don't want them to think you're taking it for granted. And so you're kind of like, no, that, that's too much, but, but okay. You know, it's like this weird, awkward tension. And so the next day or two days later, I think, um, we didn't get a message from this lady. We got a phone call. My wife got a phone call. And the lady said, listen, you know, I know I said I wanted to do that, but I just need to know how much do you owe on, on the adoption. And we, we owed a bunch. We owed like $37,000. We had only been able to save five, six, seven thousand, 7000 And so um, we owed a bunch of money. 
And the lady said, I know I, know I communicated that I wanted to give $10,000. She said, but I want to finish paying off the adoption. And I want to give you the additional $25,000 that you need to bring this baby home. And I was, just, uh, again, <laughs> until you've received something like it's just difficult to articulate what that means in a moment. But I remember talking to this lady and I said, I said, listen, we'll, we'll do this in one condition that, that we, can, we can pay you back. Like if you want to gift us the 10 and loan us the 25, we, we'll do this, but, but we want to pay you back. And she stopped me mid-sentence. She said, listen, Corey and Joy, I love you. I, and I'm so thankful to be a part of this. I love you deeply, but I need you to understand this has nothing to do with my love for you. It has everything to do with being obedient to what I feel like Father has called me to do. And I thought in that moment, I said, well, far be it for me to interfere with the Father's good plan. And so we received $35,000 from this woman. And it was an incredible thing. But the point is simply this, is that if it were not for her obedience to the call of God, perhaps we would not have had this miraculous provision and it could have been a very different story. It would have looked a lot differently um, in our lives. And so God's desire is, is for human partnership, but it's also for human obedience. Thus, we need to stay close to the Father. We need to stay close in the prayer closet so that we can hear the whispers of the Spirit when they come. And Lord willing, we will walk in obedience. Thus, walking in obedience walking in the miraculous. And so um, we can learn a lot about Jesus using the servants. To wrap all of this up really quickly, um, I think it's important for us to understand that this first miracle that Jesus accomplishes, it even has power today in our day. There are several reasons I believe this. Number one, I think this miracle is affirming that Jesus is Lord over all creation. I think it's so important for us to remember that in Latin, it is the ex nihilo, that, that God created the, the cosmos. He created everything that exists. He created it out of nothing. That his supremacy, that his power is so potent that he is Lord over all things created, that nothing is able to affect the eternality of God because he has created all things. As we said last week, God reserves the right of creation. He reserves that right unto himself. There's never been a person or a being that has genuinely created something from an origin out, out of nothing outside of God. Satan does not have the power of creation. He has the power of duplication, which he tries to do a lot, where he counterfeits. He has the power to pervert things or corrupt things. But Satan never has the ability to create things out of nothing. And so we have to understand that there's nothing outside of the reach of God. Anything within time and space, eternality, it is all falling under the power of God. John writes this in Revelation 19. He says, then I saw the new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And so by God's very nature, he is the creator and he is Lord over the creation. And what's incredibly exciting for me is to understand the reality that just because God created in the beginning of our time and space doesn't mean that God is done creating. In eternity, it's clear here that he will be making new. He will be making all things new. He will still function and operate in the mode of his creative nature. And it's so good for us to remember that in the day in which we live, that God is sovereign over all things, even nature itself. Another reason this miracle is powerful for us today is because the miracle offends modern secular thinking. This miracle is a, 
is an attack on the ideology of godless evolution. There are so many evolutionists who um, argue with the creation story because their argument is basically that the evidence that we have of trees and of skeletons and of the earth's mantle and all this stuff, that the creation story couldn't be just 10,000 years old, that this, this had to take billions of years for the earth to evolve into the place that it has. The trouble with their argument is that it is demanding that God, when he creates, to create things in their infancy form and then to age from that point. But what we see, what we see in the miracle of turning the water into wine is that when Jesus creates the wine, he creates it in such a place where it is aged wine, where it has fermented, when the fullness of his flavor has already developed, but he just created it in an instant. In other words, Jesus didn't have to create the wine and then wait for the the flavors to come to fruition. He created it in the time and space that he wanted to create it. It did not have to age. And thus, when God created all that we see today, it is unlikely that God chose to create uh, every tree that we see and all the vegetation that we see. He did not create it, very likely, in infancy as seeds in the ground. But he likely created fully mature trees, fully mature mountains, all of these things in the very same way that when he created Adam and Eve, he did not create them as children, but as fully grown adults. Furthermore, science does not take into account the toll that sin has taken on our planet. That the likelihood that when sin entered into our world, that all things began to decay, not only the the human spirit, the human body, but the Bible says all creation began to um, uh, decay. Uh, Paul wrote this. He said, when Christ comes, creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption. In other words, the, the, all that we see right now, it is bound by corruption and decay, but when Christ comes, he's gonna set it free. And so in many ways, it flies in the face of godless um, evolution. Secondly, uh, this miracle is an attack on many extra biblical writings. Um, John uh, chapter two in the 11th verse, he says this, he says, this was the first of Jesus's signs. There are extra biblical writings that talk about Jesus as a Christ child, performing miracles, even killing people, um, all of these different things. But in the canonical gospel, what we have is John saying, no, that, that is not the case. This was the first of Jesus's miracles. And so the miracle of turning water into wine, it, it has the ability to offend the modern secular thinking um, in such a way. Number three, I think the the miracle is powerful for us today because the miracle reminds us that Christ cares for our immediate concerns. Again, as we talked about last week, the family, not only would this have been an enormous embarrassment for them uh, socially, but it may have even cost them financially if government officials found out about it. And the reality is simply this, that God doesn't worship us and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't come to us and, you know, coddle us and carry us along in life. We experience hardships, but the reality is that Jesus cares deeply about the things which concern us. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says this. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will wear. It's not life more than the food and the body and clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, are you not much more valuable than them? And Jesus in this moment, even at the wedding feast, he's communicating this idea. Listen, if it matters to you, it matters to me. And I care, I I am caring about your concerns. And so I think it's a good reminder for us to embrace that. Number four, it's powerful today because it stirs our faith in Christ. Again, uh, there were probably five or six disciples um, at this wedding feast. They know that he's unique. They know that something is unique about him. His very words have drawn them to leave their career paths to follow him, but they may need a little more convincing that he's Messiah. 
And so as Jesus performs this miracle, it stirs and solidifies their faith. And it does the same for us when we see miracles as such. I was reading a a leadership book one time, um, and the author made this statement. He said, in leadership, we have to understand this phrase, that vision leaks. In other words, what he was saying is that you can go before the people you're leading, and you can cast vision, and you can do an incredible job casting vision. But two weeks from today, that vision kind of seeps out over time. Vision leaks. And so what you've got to do as a leader, a visionary leader, is you've got to constantly be talking vision and pouring vision into them as vessels. And in the very same way, this is how faith works. Oftentimes, faith kind of seeps out as we get further and further away from what the Lord is doing or intimacy with the Lord. It can kind of leak out. And in this moment, I think what Jesus is is calling us to is he's saying, listen, I care about these concerns, and this is a miraculous thing, but I didn't just do it for the miraculous purpose. I did it so that you would build your faith in me. And it's exactly what he did with his disciples. Fifth and finally, I'm closing with this. I believe the miracle is powerful for today because it whets our appetite for more of the glory of Jesus. Every miracle that we see in scripture, every miracle that we see even today in modern times, not only is it a foretaste of heaven, but it's a foretaste of heaven on earth. It's a foretaste for us, it's an indicator, it's a sign to us, if you will, that this miracle, whatever it is that we see unfold before us, although it's incredible, although it is miraculous, that there is more and more and more and more and more if we will just lean into the presence of Jesus. He has so much more for us. And when we read of miracles like this, when we see modern day miracles, it whets our appetite for more of his glory. It stirs a desire in our souls to be nearer to him and to see him do mighty and incredible things. And so tonight, Father, we thank you for your good word. I thank you, Lord, for all the truth that is packed into this, just 12 verses of scripture and all that it means for us as a church family. I wanna ask you tonight that you will bless your people that are uh, listening to this and as they have pondered, as the spirit has searched their hearts and taught them in ways that I never could. My prayer, Lord, as much as anything, that we will learn and we will mature. But Lord, I, I do pray for this last idea that you will whet our appetite for more of you, that you will give us strong desires to not only see you move, but for us to move near you and to draw close. And so I pray your blessing over your people tonight. I'm so grateful for them. I bless them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen.